This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 206 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Cameron Hurley. She's the author of such novels as God's War and The Mirror Empire, and her essay on the history of women in conflict, We Have Always Fought, was the first blog post to be nominated for and win a Hugo Award. That essay and many others are included in Cameron's new book, The Geek Feminist Revolution. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Casper combines two technologies, springy latex foam and supportive memory foam, to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And if you heard our Listener's Strike Back panel in episode 200, you might remember our guest Zach Chapman from Austin, Texas, who bought a Casper mattress after hearing about it on the show. Zach reported in that episode that he was so happy with his Casper mattress that he actually went back later and ordered a Casper pillow to go with it. And not only did Zach get a great new mattress, but he also got mentioned in a bunch of these Casper ads, and the fact that he helped us out by buying a mattress was also definitely a point in his favor when we picked him for our first ever Listener Strike Back panel. Now, I'm not saying that if you order a Casper mattress, you'll get to be on the show, but maybe I am. So it would probably be in your best interest to head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size one, and shipping to the U.S. and Canada is absolutely free. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Terms and conditions apply. So remember the address is casper.com galaxy, and you should also use the promo code galaxy, which will get you a $50 discount, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, and so now here's our interview with Cameron Hurley. All right, so we're here with Cameron Hurley. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so first of all, just tell us about how you discovered Joanna Russ. <laughs> discovered Joanna Russ. That's a very good question. Uh, I actually went to the Clarion West Writing Workshop in uh, the year 2000, so a while ago now. Uh, but that was actually the point at which uh, I think a little bit before then I started exploring some old school science fiction because uh, I was getting a lot of pushback. All the guys would tell you, oh, you gotta, you don't, you kids these days, you don't read the good stuff. So I started reading lots of Alfred Bester and Heinlein, all those folks, and, uh, you know, stumbled across, uh, you know, Le Guin, uh, Joanna Russ, um, Vonda McIntyre, uh, all of those, you know, new wave feminist science fiction writers. Uh, and I, I read, I'm trying to remember the first one I read. Um, I don't remember which it was. It might have been We Who Are About To. Um, but yeah, then I end up, I own literally everything that she's ever, uh, written, which was not a lot. Unfortunately, she was kind of taken out of the game a little bit early, uh, due to health, uh, issues and stuff. But, um, that was my early introduction. It was just me trying to get a better depth and breadth, uh, in the field of science fiction. Right. Well, so say, what was it about her writing that made such an impression on you? 
You know, Le Guin is a fabulous writer. Uh, she is absolutely wonderful, but she was not as radical as Russ. Joanna Russ was like, screw everything, burn it all down, rage against the machine. It took me a long time to read The Female Man because it's so dense and kind of like out there. And it, the second time I read it, I finally or tried to read it. I finally got it. Uh, and what she's doing there is so incredibly radical. Uh, it really is burn it all down. Like, Le Guin's like, hey, let's all get along and we'll, you know, change things from the inside. And she was just like, this whole system is screwed. We're all screwed. Kill them all. Uh, and I admired that. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Um, so I just really loved her attitude toward, uh, toward change. Um, which, you know, sounds terrible, but I think sometimes you need to have anger to drive you. Because honestly, you get worn down very easily uh, with all of the different things that kind of come at you. And I mean, there's an entire system in place that is made to get you to give up and to accept the status quo. And I think she used her anger a lot to get her through that and to kind of get her out of that kind of depression that this sort of, uh, you know, living in this in this kind of oppression can can give to people. Right. And then you talk in the book about how when she died in 2011, you kind of looked around and said, hmm, who's going to pick up this this mantle? Yeah, it was interesting. I was at, I think it was the last uh, public interview that she did. Sam Delaney interviewed her actually over the phone at WISCON and she uh, answered a few questions and things like that. And then, you know, it was a few years later that she passed away. And I did, you know, you always want to, you always look back to who came, you know, before you. And she was just such a great voice, uh, even though she, you know, she hadn't really written anything uh, substantial, I think since like the late nineties. I just, there was like this thing where you can't just go, well, it's that generation's going to handle it and it'll be fine. And, you know, they're still all kicking. It's like, no, there's sort of a, there's sort of a thing where at some point you have to go, is that us? Like, (laughs) like I look around at my peers, uh, the the folks who were, uh, I considered, you know, the newbies in the field when I first came up. And now I look, you know, ahead at them and I'm like, wow, like they are, they're the, they're the man, they're the (laughs) establishment, right? Like Scalzi was the scrappy little, you know, internet dude. Uh, and now he's kind of like, you know, oh, he is science fiction. Uh, and you just kind of look at how that mantle gets passed down to people. And it's like, yeah, you can either kind of wait for everybody to kind of give it to you, or you can kind of seize it yourself and say, you know what, these are things that need to be said. And we can keep, uh, you know, sharing these same sorts of messages uh, to, you know, new audiences in different ways. Yeah, I like this. You say in the book, I've been screaming on the internet for 10 years. What's 40 more? <laughs> Whatever, in whatever form the internet will have. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, talk about, I mean, what are some of these, the system that needs to be burned down? I mean, what are some of the um, issues that really need to be addressed when it comes to women writing fantasy and science fiction? Well, you know, I think it's the same as, you know, women, uh, you know, women of all races, you know, men of color in any kind of industry. Uh, we live within a society that has stratified and codified uh, where people live and how people interact. Uh, one of the things it's a, you know, again, it's in the book, but I grew up in a very white town and I thought, well, that's just how it is. It's just very white. That was like made that way on purpose. Uh, you know, uh, there were no, there was no one allowed. Uh, there were no black people allowed in Oregon, Washington or California for years, years and years. It was illegal for them to live there. They would be kicked out and burned out. They had people in towns that were literally, they would go into towns sometimes. They'd burn people out. Uh, and we look at these kind of structures and systems and go, well, that was all a long time ago. And we're, you know, 
we're so much better than that, blah, blah. But we're living with the historical memory of that and the historical fallout from that. And so we have to then negotiate uh, our entire lives and build new lives based on all that horror that's come, you know, before us. Uh, and that's really difficult to do. Uh, so again, it's very easy to kind of perpetuate this myth that, well, this, these things have always been this way. Men have always, you know, written, you know, an 80% of science fiction and women just, you know, there's, there's occasionally one good, but there's occasionally an Ursula Le Guin. When in fact, like you look at it and it's like almost at parody, like right now we're about at parody uh, as far as like authors go. But you wouldn't see that if you look at reviews, if you look at coverage, if you look at all of those sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, there's, I mean, that's, that's, uh, there's been historical stuff. You can run the numbers, it's been done. Uh, and you just go, well, how do we fix all of that? And well, the answer is that you have to kind of, you have to completely reimagine all of the things that you've been told to be true. And that's really hard. It's really hard to be like, wow, all of those things I was told was a lie. Right. And, and I mean, you say, like, I, I know women who wrote hard SF or epic fantasy who threw in the towel or went to genres like urban fantasy or romance that were far more wel welcoming to women authors. You, like when you say it's hard for women in hard SF or epic fantasy, like what exactly are the are the challenges in those particular genres? <laughs> uh, well, you could go to a convention. <laughs> um, you know, for years and years, uh, there were, you know, people call them the, the whisper networks, but it's not, you know, basically it's just like, oh, you have a panel with such and such a guy who is an editor or an agent. And hey, just so you know, like they're a creeper and they're totally going to hit on you or they're going to say something inappropriate or they're going to try to, you know, do something awful. Um, and I actually there was one there's a story from one writer. I know it was her first convention that she went to and a very established science fiction writer. You know, she she's a little baby writer. She just had her first book come out and she's volunteering in the green room. And he goes, well, what do you write? And she said, but she wrote, and it was not hard SF. It was a different, uh, different genre. And he looked at her and goes, you are worth less than the shit on my shoe. <laughs> she was like, okay, thanks. Welcome to science fiction. <laughs> uh, and we see that all the time, right? Um, you know, we have, you know, classic harassers that we've been, we've been trying to get rid of for years. Uh, in the field. And of course, people keep going, oh, it's not a big deal. It's da da da. But like, people don't understand when you have to deal with that every single day. I hear that from guys all the time. Well, somebody hit on me. I think it'd be great. It's like, you have never been on Chicago public transit for 15 hours a week and then hit on like three times a day. It is exhausting and it's scary because you don't know what people are going to do if you say no. People scream at you. People have pulled knives on people. Um, people could assault you. That happens all the time. Um, and, and people don't realize that after a while, like doing that again and again, and again, like I talked about earlier, it's made to wear you down, you know, seeing that all the time and experiencing that all the time, it gets to you. It does get to you. And it ends up meaning that, yeah, you have to fight harder. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have to fight that hard just to have a job, right? Just to write a book and tell a story. But there are, you know, those barriers and you do tend to have to be, and as a woman writer, you got to be louder. And you got to be put yourself out there more. And you got to do this and this because you're not going to come first at top of mind. Um, I think I, this I love this exercise to do with people where I say, when you those of you who can imagine things in your mind. Recently, I've read there are some who cannot. But if you can imagine things, say, when you hear the word writer, what is the first vision? Like, what is the, the vision that you associate with the word writer? For me, it is actually a an image of Walt Whitman, right, with the long white man, long beard. 
So if we start with that, with our language, with how we learn language, policemen, what is the picture we see in the little book? Oh, it's a man. And it is a man who is in a police uniform. Like that's how we associate all of those things going forward. So we're fighting against all of these things, you know, uh, that we've been taught from the very, very young age. And so in order to completely reconceptualize how we think about things is very challenging. Um, I think it's very useful, but also very challenging because even now when people ask me, oh, who are your favorite writers? dude writers like go to the top of my list does that mean that's only my favorite writers absolutely not <laughs> you know i love i love joanna russ i love capolente you know i love tons of writers but the first thing i do is oh those top three um and that's you know that's how we were raised that's the world that we live in it sucks um but if you want to make it better you actually have to acknowledge it exists and then you have to work to change it Right. And you make the point in the book that when a lot of these hurtful things, it's not just this one incident. It's this long pattern that really kind of wears people down. And you give an example, like you were you wrote a story early on where you had um, a gay male character die. Uh, could you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I uh, I wrote a novel called God's War, and um, uh, it's this big old uh, matriarchy, actually, and t- tons of, you know, women in, in uh uh, same-sex relationships. Uh, I only had one gay male character uh, in that particular book, and it so happened that as I was working through the plot of the book, I read there's an incident, and he ends up dying. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the book, and then I realized I was like, "Oh my gosh, there is the kill the kill the gay guy character. Oh, the best friend who dies, who's gay, the only gay male character." And I couldn't figure out how to have the plot do the same things it needed to do and keep him alive. Um, now I can. <laughs> now, you know, six years later, five years later, after I've been thinking about it forever, now I can figure it out. But I could, I was not at that point um, in my career where I could, you know, the technical proficiency, where I could figure out how to get myself out of the plot thing that I had dug. Um, and I said, okay, you know, I'll add another, some more gay male characters. You know, they're going to have some supporting roles. So at least it's not the only gay male character. Um, but it still showed and it still hurt. And this was the thing that happened was that when I went to, and you know, and I knew it was problematic and like, you know, it's, it's going out the door. It's going out the door. Damn it. Um, but that's, that's how it is. Um, and yeah, you know, sure enough, I went to uh, a convention. As soon as I got off a panel, I had a young woman come to me and she said, you know, I am in a writing group or a reading group. We read your book. We all really loved it. But I have to tell you, there were a lot of gay men in my writing group or my reading group. And they really bugged him that, that he had to die. It really hurt them. He, she was like, it just, you know, it always happens in all of the tragic loss of the gay character. Uh, and I told her just what I've told you. I was like, I knew it was a problem and that was stupid. And I apologize. And I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, in subsequent books, I was like, I have to make sure that if I'm going to add in a character, I'm not just, you know, oh, plot reason. I need to kill them. Uh, and I did, you know, going forward, I, I made sure to be much more aware. And that's with all sorts of characters. You know, I have to be aware of that. Um, one of the ways, again, the best way to get around that, of course, is to just have lots of different characters, um, who have lots of different, uh, you know, backgrounds and different representations. So that you're not just like, oh, that is the one gay character and they're going to die tragically or the one trans character and oh, they die tragically. But luckily our heroes <laughs> are all fine. But if your heroes are, you know, gay or trans or whatever, um, it's like, it's not as much of a, it's not, it doesn't feel like it is a purposeful slap in the face. Um, so a lot of this comes down to, and I tell people this all the time, is not being a lazy writer. Uh, don't be lazy. We see all, again, 
those things that we're programmed with, we see these things in media, we see these tropes, and we just perpetuate them. And I'm like, you need to sit down and go, is this really the story I want to tell? Or is this the story that I've been told I should be telling? Ryan, I thought it was interesting that you say, you know, the solution to this is not just to go through the story and take out anything that people might find problematic, but to understand what's problematic and to take responsibility and own the things that you're choosing to leave in there. Absolutely. Um, I, that That's what gets me all the time. It's like, if you as a creator... And this was the thing, like, I owe up to, you know, what I what I did to that character, because at the end of the day, it went out the door, and I knew what I was doing. Um, and I said, you know, it's all perfectly fine and good if for you to be on, you know, get on to the social medias when Twitter comes at you and be like, hey, well, I wanted to write a misogynist, horrible society where women have a terrible time. That was my purpose, and that was my artistic choice. Fine. Great. But don't get up there and say, it's not misogynist and I didn't write this. Blah, blah. That's what you wrote. Just owe up to it. That's what you wrote. Um, and if like that is a conscious artistic choice you have made and there's a purpose for you doing it, then you go right ahead. That doesn't mean people aren't going to critique you. You have to, as an artist, you're going out into the world. You need to understand you're going to hear from everybody. And I think that's the shock that's happening, especially to um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of creators is they're saying, oh my gosh, all these people who I had the privilege of never hearing from before, cause again, little white town, um, because it was manufactured that way, they never had to hear from it. And now, you know, the internet's brought everybody together in wonderful ways, absolutely, because we have not heard those voices. We never had anybody saying back, hey, actually, no, that's totally messed up. Um, and some people are reacting to that in an awesome way and going, oh my gosh, you're totally right. That's messed up. I will fix that next time. And I owe up to it. And some are going, no, like babies. Uh, and I'm like, you're not 12. Like, come on. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that was one thing that really struck me about this book is how much of it is concerned with how a writer needs to comport themselves online, which I think says so much about what it's like being a writer today and how you have to think in terms of you know, your your presence and how you interact with readers and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, you know, clearly is just coming from my own experience. I started my blog in 2004 and I have been on the internet, uh, you know, waging, waging battles <laughs> on the internet ever since. Uh, lots of people are like, oh, it's so much worse now. And I would say, well, yeah, you know, Twitter can organize mobs a lot faster, but you didn't see my my comments sections in 2004, you know, I, I had a, a blatantly feminist blog called Brutal Women of all things. And man, the stuff I would get on there was just awful. Um, and at least with this, I can, you know, Twitter, especially I, can just, I just mute accounts, I mute keywords. I don't, I don't see a lot of things anymore, which is fabulous. And when the mob comes, it's like, okay, I'm going to be mobbed for two days and I'm going to mute a lot of accounts and then it's over. Um, Whereas, yeah, man, the comments stream, you know, the comments section of the blog was just awful. But again, it's to me, it was, I actually felt very, um, fortunate having come up through like early ish, I guess, internet days. You know, I was, I was on the blogger platform, um, because I got to learn a lot more about, Hey, do I really want comments on my blog? I decided I didn't, I don't have comments anymore because I don't want to go through with that anymore. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've been able to kind of look at my social, um, my social presence and keep it very cultivated and make sure that it is working for me and I'm not, you know, being overwhelmed by it. And that's something, especially, you know, a lot of women, 
uh, deal with, uh, you know, but uh, that's across the board. Everybody deals with this to some extent. You know, women get the worst of it. Um, you know, women of color, the absolute worst. So it's like you just have I, I, what I wanted to do was provide some some guideline and instruction and be like, hey, you know, just so you know, like you can do this. This is okay. And yes, we're all dealing with it. Um, and not to say, you know, clearly there are lots of problems and we also need to teach people how to like respect each other on the internet. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, issues with etiquette and tools to manage, uh, harassment, which of course Twitter fails at completely. But anyway, um, and so what I look at is I say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's all work together on this and let's strategize. Um, because it's really lonely. I, you know, I saw this, <laughs> there was, uh, I, I won't say who, but there was, there was a, a, a creator, um, in the geek space and who was very upset by some things that were said, uh, in a comment section and was just had this, just was crying and sobbing on Snapchat and, um, about they were just going to give in and quit and whatever. And it just broke my heart. Because I look at this huge, you know, generation of creators uh, who are so talented and so fabulous. And I'm like, this is just, uh, we, I don't want to lose them because of some assholes on the internet. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting because you say on Twitter specifically that you think you should mute people rather than blocking them. Because if you block them, that's kind of a sign to them that they got to you in a way. Yeah, that's that's a personal thing. I know lots of people who are like, Oh, I, I, I just block everyone I want. But unfortunately, what you end up seeing is, um, they get real weird and obsessive. Um, like, oh, I won a point. I, I, I won points against her. I really, I really screwed with her. Cause what you gotta get again with so many of these people, they're like, they're sadists, right? They're sadists and drama queens. Um, and they love to hear they, it makes their day when you're like, Oh, you hurt my feelings. They love that. Um, so my my personal um you know way to deal with it is just I just mute I just mute like crazy um I I've had you know the creepy ones who are like I can see that you're on Twitter you haven't <laughs> blocked me why are you not listening which someone else had actually pointed out to me because of course they were muted and I'm like whoa this dude needs to whoo, he needs to do something else but again they're only gonna go at it for so long before they get bored um so uh so yeah that's that's you know my approach is that we're for everyone no absolutely not. Uh, but, uh, you know, the real issue with Twitter, of course, is this is a, uh, systematic problem that Twitter really needs to deal with. And they're not dealing with it with harassment in a way that is, um, very beneficial to anyone. And, uh, so it's like, yeah, in the meantime, we kind of have to, have to all find, find our way to make it, a, a usable platform because it has been, there were times before I started muting accounts and muting keywords, especially where it was just a load of noisy garbage. It, it was getting so bad for me. And the problem is I make so many really great contacts, not just with bands, um, but with other creators uh, that have led to like real life friendships. And I don't want to lose that. It's an incredible tool for people. And to drive everybody off it is just, again, we look again, <laughs> you look at systematic, you know, uh, uh, issues that lead to lost opportunities for people and that's one of them there as well if women and people of color uh women of all races and, and you know men of color can't use these platforms then we've cut off you know this entire you know area of opportunity which again becomes then a systematic you know issue of oppression uh which we need to really consider and think about so 
Right. I mean, like you say, I spent a great deal of my life trying to be quiet and nice, and not pissed anyone off. I was miserable. It served no purpose. And they still came for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, I was a, uh, you know, clearly a geek growing up. I was not terribly popular like most geeks. Um, and I did, right? I tried to be really nice and, um, like the things that other people liked, uh, and do the things that other people were supposed to do. And what you find out is they're going to bully you anyway, you know? Uh, and I thought, you know what? If I'm going to get bullied anyway, I might as well be getting bullied for making a difference in the world. I mean, literally, and here's the thing too, like, here's the thing with internet BS is that, you know, for every dude that's like, ah, kill yourself, there are literally hundreds at this point, but, you know, dozens that I've seen who women who come up to me at conventions and who will just start sobbing. And they're just like, I am so happy to meet you. You've changed my life. Um, this, your work's amazing and inspiring. I get emails from people all the time who are like, you inspired me to do this, you know, move across the country or to, you know, propose to the person I loved or to, you know, stop screwing around and go back to school. Like, those are the things that you live for. And it's like, you can tell me to die on the internet all day, but like that kind of, um, doing that kind of good in the world, it's just like that, it, it, it makes all that other stuff just ridiculous. So. Yeah, well, and I mean, it seems like the, the all the kind of bullshit you're talking about has inspired you to to write these essays about it. But it seems like also a lot of your fiction is kind of inspired by pushing back against this kind of thing. Could you talk about what impact these battles have had on shaping your fiction? Sure. Um, my first book, God's War, was actually me saying, how could I have a matriarchy but not have all the men be dead <laughs> because well, what I would read, right? The old, I read, I read a lot of old school uh, feminist uh, science fiction and a lot of people were just like, Hey, I'm going to have a disease that kills all the men. And that's how they had matriarchy. Uh, and I was just, I was not buying that. And I said, well, what if we send them all off to war, which is kind of a cop out. A lot of them still die. But then I started saying, okay, yes, you know, mo the men are all shipped off to war. There's a 300 year ongoing war. Uh, on this, you know, uh, colonized planet, you know, 10,000 10, years in the future. And I said, okay, how would that affect everything else in their lives? Uh, and then I, you know, took different, different, um, I took made up religions based on, uh, kind of this combination of like Islam, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, and I kind of just mashed them all together and, and made them into their own, uh, far future religions. Uh, and I really said, okay, this is, now let's explore these two characters, one of whom is very privileged. She's a woman in this society. And she, uh, is a bounty hunter. She's still on the, on the down and outs. She's not politically powerful, but she's physically powerful and the law doesn't touch her, uh, because of what she does. She used to be a government assassin. And then I said, okay, now I'm going to take a man from the, uh, folks that they're fighting. And I'm going to throw him into the mix and say, okay, now how does he live in that society and how does that compare and contrast the way she lives? And of course, on the top of that, right, this is how you make a cool, awesome adventure story that also says things. On top of that, you know, they are hunting down this alien who may have the key to, you know, ending the holy war. And um, so they're running around through this contaminated desert. It's Mad Max in space, basically. It's it's really fun. And um uh, it, was, it was interesting because uh, I did have several uh, readers email me uh, and they said, you know what? I didn't understand. You know, they're guys. They're like, I didn't really understand like microaggressions and like sexism 
until I read this book and I it totally um you know empathized with Reese the male character who was going around in his matriarchal girl society where he was you know kind of he was like open game like stuff could happen to him and there would be no repercussions um and uh there, so he had to kind of deal with this constant is this someone who's just making a comment about me on the street or are they actually going to attack me uh and he really was like hey you know um the you know these readers were like wow that that completely changed my my understanding um and that was very gratifying right uh at the same time you know it also said other many other things um and then when of course when i went to write my epic fantasy uh the mirror empire i said i want to make an epic fantasy with actual fantastic cultures i don't just want to be like it is pseudo medieval europe that is just our idea of again our idea of medieval europe not how medieval europe actually was and it's a patriarchy and horrible things happen to women and all the men's are in charge running around with swords that all of them can totally wield i'm like okay let's do cool things with like consent-based culture uh that's that's polyamorous and matriarchal then let's have like this violent matriarchy then let's have a patriarchy but they have three genders and then let's have you know and and so i took that and said now that i have all those things i'm going to put this cool plot on top of it once again so that you don't just have who no one wants to read a lecture right? no one hmm. wants to read message fiction that was like my biggest problem with some of the old school science fiction and feminist science fiction is that they were very much just kind of think pieces and they felt a little didactic. And I said, I want an adventure story where stuff blows up, um, which also does cool stuff with social, uh, social mores. So, uh, so yeah, there's on top of that, of course, this plot, these two parallel universes are colliding. One, one world will live, one world will die and all of the people who have to fight in this war. And that's really fun. Um, so yeah, so I totally just took those things and I said, I'm going to pair all of the awesome kick butt uh plots that I love. I love the old Conan novels. Totally problematic, but I love Conan. Uh and Conan is basically Nyx, who's the God's War uh former assassin. Uh it just keeps up and gets going and she's a boxer and kicks everybody's butt and has a great time. And they are old school adventure stories. They fight bugs and they blow things up. She used to be a sapper. Uh and I have a lot of fun while at the same time actually doing fantastic things with uh the social stuff which you don't see as much which seems crazy you know it's like hey we're writing fantasy we're writing science fiction we could literally do anything and it's like you know <laughs> this is this always got me it's like reading the ray bradbury martian stories i tried to get into them and literally we're on mars we're on mars and it's like the martian man reads the newspaper and calls <laughs> to his wife in the kitchen who's making dinner and i'm like are you kidding me right now and it's like 1950s america on mars um maybe he mentioned in an ironic way but knowing bradbury he's just having fun and uh so i was like no <laughs> it's like no i'm not doing that we are actually if we're going to write a fantasy or science fiction we're actually going to write a fantasy and science fiction novel well, when you say you're writing about a consent-based culture, could you say a little bit more about what that actually means? Sure, yeah. Um, that, that, that one actually always surprises people. It is literally like at the age of 12, uh, all of the people in this culture, uh, you are not allowed to physically touch them in any way unless they give their permission. So if you want to hug someone, if you would like to touch their shoulder, uh, if you would like to hold them back from rushing into a burning building, <laughs> you have to ask uh for their permission um and 
And it's, it was just a very interesting thing where I said, hey, I want to make a fully consent-based culture. I want to know what that looks like. Uh, and, you know, you could kind of give a blanket consent for someone that, you know, you're in love with and say, hey, that you have blanket consent and we've consented to X, Y, and Z. Um, and it was interesting because it would, of course, of course, turn into like these interesting negotiations between characters of what is and isn't okay. Uh, and then, of course, having that culture interact with other cultures was just explosive because, of course, for them, um, you know, touching without consent is just like that's that's punishable by exile. Like you would get rid of them. Uh, and there, of course, you know, nonviolence uh, and all of that. And so there's just really uh, huge repercussions. So, yeah, that was interesting. And I also thought it was interesting. Well, lots of these I do because as a writer, it challenges me uh, in how I'm writing because I didn't realize how much I'd rely on, you know, oh, so-and-so tapped her shoulder or grabbed her arm or, you know, did something where we were actually physically touching. So I'd have to stop and be like, no, they're not. They're going to get attention, you know, some other way. They might grab a sleeve, they might grab some sleeve, but that was like the the furthest I could <laughs> go. Um, so it was just, it was very interesting for me to kind of give myself those um, restrictions and see what happened with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your character, Nyx. I was really struck by this description in the book. You say, uh, what you'd end up with is something like Nyx, the foul-talking, <laughs> head-chopping mercenary from my God's War series, sitting on the toilet, belly fat spilling out, ragged scars up her thighs, hairy legs splayed. She'd be sitting there with mismatched skin lined in scars and stretch marks and maybe paging through some boxing magazine, flabby breasts unbound and spilling on her stomach, and she could give a fuck about you. <laughs> and this is not a character that we see much in in fantasy. No, no, unfortunately. But yeah, no, she was uh, super fun to write. Because again, she lived with absolute privilege. Um, I think it was Adam Roberts who actually uh, wrote a really great review of that book where he talked about escapism uh, and how she was just such a great character for kind of channeling all of one's frustrations uh, about, you know, sexism in the world. And you know, you're in this little office cubicle and You've got a boss who asks you to get coffee again, even though like you outrank him and you know, all these little, these little microaggressions you deal with every day. And then you can just go home and read about Nix, who could really give a crap and <laughs> goes <laughs> off and punches people in the face. Um, I was actually writing a scene with her for a novella I'm working on. And it was interesting because I had her kind of drunk and disorderly in a bar and even the authorities didn't want to deal with her because she, you know, used to be a government assassin. She could literally do anything. She could literally kill someone. Uh, and she would be, she was untouchable. And I thought, wow, to live with that kind of privilege, which as we know, lots of rich people in particular, uh, live with that kind of privilege. And so it was just very interesting to kind of create the society of someone who didn't have to live with, you know, the gaze, uh, you know, the, the male gaze or the gaze of, um, society that tells you what you can or cannot do. It was just like people, people let her be herself for better or worse, right? She's not a great person. <laughs> I want to make sure that's clear. <laughs> she's not great, but she's different. Uh, as you said, it's like it's not someone that we get to see a whole lot. Right. Well, cause, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of discussion these days about quote unquote strong female characters. And you say in the book that you feel like these characters aren't written for you and you don't find them too persuasive a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, I, was I reading? I was reading something recently where like the quote unquote strong field protagonist has almost just become a trope in itself where literally it's just, hey, I am a woman with a gun and uh, I'm running around and in this world full of mostly men 
and everyone respects me and I, you know, have lots of sex and that's great. And I punch things and that's great. But there's no, there's nothing deeper than that. I felt, I felt like it's almost people going, well, but look, she's strong. She has a gun. I'm like, well, that's, there's more, there's more to those sorts of things. Um, then, you know, you don't, you don't give a, you don't give a woman a gun and go, sexism is over. Hmm. <laughs> it doesn't happen. There's no exploration. And I run into this all the time. There's no exploration a lot of times when I see people go, oh, we're women are equal. What does that mean? Who does the work? It's like, how, who is doing all of these jobs that, you know, were traditionally gendered jobs uh, that we see in a lot of societies? You need to actually do that work and figure that out, you know, economically. Yeah, it's great. Everyone can be what they want to be. Um, but does that mean, you know, guys get to stay home and do what they want? Does that mean, um, that there's a class of people that, you know, has to do, uh, most of the childcare and the cooking? God, who does the cooking? Like cooking's, you know, that's, there's a lot of work. <laughs> there's a lot of work that makes society function that we made into gendered work. Um, so I think that really needs to be explored and people don't want to do that. They just want to go, woo, everything's equal. It's like that's that one little part is. And then there's no also, you know, deconstruction of then masculinity is giving someone a gun any better. <laughs> you know, I'm like, does that again, Nick's not a great care, not a great person. Right. When you make the point in the book that I thought was really interesting is that a lot of these these strong female protagonists, they're able to fight physically. But so many of their preoccupations are still preoccupations that come out of living in a society in which women have less power. So you say, like, I want to be tough, but lovable. I want to be cool, but acceptable. You know, I want to be special, but not so special that nobody loves me. You know, it's it's still based on this power dynamic, no matter how you know physically ass kicking they are. Well, and there's a very, um, very much that, oh, she's tough, but vulnerable, <laughs> uh, you know, thing, because I think that there's this idea I, and especially for uh, male readers, but female you know, readers as well, because we're all indoctrinated, right? Where there's this idea that if a woman is tough, it can only be in a way that is still sexy. Um, because if she is not still a sexual object, uh, then that's really scary and that's abhorrent and that's monstrous and we need to get rid of that. Uh, so what ends up happening is, yeah, you have the tough but vulnerable uh, character. Uh, and and that in of itself is a fantasy, right? It's it's something that we can say, oh, you know, this is this is uh, this is acceptably strong, right? Like there's a there's a line uh, which I think that you that you see quite a bit. Um, so yeah, so it's something that I try to be aware of, and it's something that kind of bugs me when I see it in uh, in a lot of uh, books as well, where it's like, oh, she's tough, she's great, she's awesome, and then she's with the man that she loves, and she sobs and cries, ah, you know, which. You know, I get it. Yeah, there's going to be, you know, we have, where are all the women friendships as well, right? And there's a lot of these you don't see, like, female friendships. You don't see female background characters. It's literally just this woman kind of existing, um, you know, to to kind of, you know, be a fantasy for guys. Um, and I don't see as much of it, uh, you know, where where it actually feels like a living, breathing human being, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, and there were some really some things in this book just about the real world that I didn't know that kind of surprised me. So, you know, you're talking about gendered work. I mean, you say that actually we have this image of cavemen going off and hunting meat and while well, the cave women stayed home and took care of the kids and that this is kind of a fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was a fiction developed in the 1950s, actually. It's very because it, you if you look at that, you go, gosh, that just looks a lot like the 1950s, <laughs> you know, lifestyle. And in fact, it is. 
Um, this is the problem that we have when we look back at the historical record is that we are always going to be trying to evaluate the past from our place in the present. And it's very dangerous to do that because then we end up doing something called downstreaming. You know, my background's in history, which is uh, we kind of press all of our social mores and and uh, beliefs onto uh, the, the past. Um, and I think, again, the issue is also, yeah, when you look at uh, there's a great book, again, I mentioned it in the novel called um, Blood Rights by Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, where she goes into this thing where she said, you know, there were not there were not these like pair bonds of, you know, one man and one woman and their 2.5 children, you know, hunting bison. <laughs> the man goes out to hunt bison. The woman just sticks around by herself. You couldn't survive. You couldn't survive. Uh, you couldn't have people who were specialists. You had to have generalists and you would live in a, uh, you know, a loose family unit where you would have, you know, grandparents and uncles and aunts and moms and dads and friends and cousins. And I mean, it would just be, this you know web of people and a lot of this quote unquote hunting was actually a group activity especially the ones where they're you know getting all the the mammoths to go off the cliff you had everybody out there you know with sticks running around getting them to go off the cliff um so there are all these things that we kind of assume because we learned them you know from these texts that were initially uh, you know put together in 1950 and 1950 is a great touch point too because of course that was those were the times where we were all trying to be just the same because we didn't want to be accused of being communists. So everyone was like told to be just this way and do only these things and that those are the normal things. Um, when in fact, you know, that especially now looking back, even after, you know, the, the economy's tanked and things are crazy, uh, where we look back at the 50s and go, actually, that was the unnatural time. <laughs> that was like the most unnatural time was post-World War II, where we're trying to make this world where everyone is the same. Um and all the, you know, oh, and every, every man gets a house and every man gets a, gets a wife and they all have these children. And there were like, everyone was, my grandmother loves to tell me that. She's like, you know, the 1950s was not the way the 1950s is portrayed. She's like, it was nothing like that. Um, but that is our cultural, our cultural story, right? Again. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's a part in the book when you're in South Africa and you're talking to this professor about your master's, the master's thesis. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I lived in South Africa for a year and a half, yeah, doing my master's, and I was very interested in uh, the apartheid, uh, the resistance against apartheid. I had actually done my undergraduate work looking at how students were mobilized by the African National Congress to in the fight against apartheid, and uh, I was kind of following up my research there, and uh, I was talking with my professor. And one of the professors, there were many there, I was kind of, I, I was shuffled around a bit until I found uh, my eventual, uh, eventual thesis advisor. And he was actually the expert uh, there on um, uh, Zulu culture. And I said, well, you know, uh, this was really cool. I found this, uh, I found this thing um, that says, hey, 20% uh, of Mkotoe Sizwe, which was uh, the militant wing of the African National Congress, was women. It actually says it, like, in uh, their meeting minutes uh, for for the organization. Like, wow, that seems like a lot. I mean, if you look at, if you, sound, if you look at, like, your, your picture of revolutionary movements, like, from media, I mean, you know, 20%, that's, that's not an insignificant number. That's, like, you know, almost one in five. And if you look in the background of all those revolutionary movements, you're not seeing one in five of those people being women. 
Um, and I said, well, you know, I'd love to do this because of course I, you know, women, women haven't been part of, you know, any sort of, you know, fighting or revolutionary movements. And he just like looks at me and he's like, women have always fought, <laughs> you know, that's, that's like the craziest thing. He's like, you know, Shaka Zulu had this whole contingent of women fighters. Like that, this has always been a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Young person, what are you <laughs> saying? Um, and that really kind of led me down the path of going, oh, I, this is not an anomaly. What I'm seeing, this is actually um, something that has happened a lot. And in fact, once I went through the historical record, especially in resistance movements, it was usually 20 to 30 percent was female. And even, of course, in um, more formalized armies, uh, the Civil War, uh, you know, World War Two, uh, uh, you know, Russia had a huge you know, battalion of uh, women tank operators. Um you know, I started actually looking at it and you you realize like that impression that you've gotten from, again, those textbooks written in the 50s. Um, you got the impression that, you know, that had not been the case, that things had always been a certain way. Uh, and in fact, it was all a lie. And, you know, you have to really dig to get past, you know, again, those stories that we tell ourselves. Right. You talk about how these narratives have so much power. And I mean, you suggest that a lot of reasons that so many men are willing to abuse women verbally on the Internet is because they've grown up with these narratives that women are prizes to be won and men are the ones who always deserve the prize and get the prize in the end. Yeah. And I think um, there's also, oh, my gosh, Lori Penny had this amazing article recently about why it is we keep having these darn stories uh, about about why we feminize um AI, right? Why is Ex Machina? Um, it goes all the way back to Pygmalion and his statue coming alive. And of course, it's a woman. And she said, you know what this is? Because I always thought, oh, this is men and their fantasies. They just want a woman that they can tell what to do. And she said, <laughs> no, this is part of men's um, uh, way of trying to understand when it is that women become human and whether or not women are human. And I was like, Oh my God. It's really good. You should read it. I forget the name of it. Um, but the way that she kind of looks at it is it goes, you know, we're always told, and I, I get, I get into this again in, in the essay. We have always fought. We are given these specific words and we do this in the military. You know, I do a lot of research, uh, in military history and, you know, it's not, I want you to shoot that man over there. It's like, I want you to hit that target, right? I want you to, and then there's all sorts of, you know, terrible names that we come up with for the people that we want to kill. Uh, and we run into that again with women, where it's like, one of the reasons you know, people are like, why do you consider like saying bitch or whore is so bad to a woman? And it's like, well, the reason is because that's usually the prelude to being assaulted. <laughs> that's usually someone says that to you and they are othering you. They're making you not a human so that they can feel that they can do something horrible to you. Um, so to me, that whole idea is that, you know, guys aren't really taught that women are fully human. Um, and you see that with all the segregation that we have, especially in schools. Um, men don't need to know things about women's anatomy or feelings or any of that in order to be successful in life. They just don't. As a woman, you have to know things about men. That's the world is, you know, literally run by guys. You need to know how to get around in a world of men. Uh, and it, men don't necessarily have to. And so they can kind of, you know, kind of get by on going, well, you know, I don't know that, you know, women are actually really human. Yeah. And I wasn't, I'd never heard of this before, but you say in the book that in countries that are more egalitarian, like in places like Amsterdam and Canada, that pickup artist tactics don't work. <laughs> there was a really great article, uh, from a, I don't forget who it is. Anyway, don't need to mention his name, <laughs> but, uh, 
Where, yeah, he wrote this long diatribe against Amsterdam because he was, like, going around the world and picking women up. And he realized that, like, his story about being rich and, uh, you know, awesome, like, he couldn't just go in and, like, you know, neg women and basically tell them they're crap because they would just be like, you know, what are you, so what? Like, they don't, there was no, like, alpha male thing. Like, a lot of the times, you know, you'll see where it's like, and when you're in a country that is uh, very hierarchical, it's like, oh, well, money's everything. Um, and you hear all these guys, well, if I just go in and I say that I have money, you know, I will have all these women over me. And it's like, well, yeah, because it's really hard. You know, women still make a lot less than men. Um, and what he found was like that no longer worked. He couldn't just be a jerk and say, I'm a jerk, but I have money. They were just like, well, you're a jerk. <laughs> they don't need money. Um, so yeah, it was just completely different. And the cultural attitude, uh, is just very different. I think in America, we let, uh, jerkdom, uh, Jerkdom gets, um, all, you know, it's almost, it's very interesting. It almost right now is, is being equated with like genius. Uh, you, Steve Jobs, great example. He was a jerk. Uh, brilliant, right? Brilliant in this, in these some ways, but also a jerk. And people then equate his brilliance with the jerk part. And I was like, no, he was successful in spite of being a jerk, not because he was a jerk. Uh, and I think that a lot of times we sort of put that on a pedestal. Um, where other places don't do that. We just go, no, that's, why would you do that? Um, and unfortunately, you know, sometimes in our media, that becomes the narrative, uh, is that, well, yes, he's a horrible human being, but look, look at what a genius he is. And, and, and like women, that's another thing, right? A lot of only white guys can get away with that one. <laughs> only white guys. Cause it's like anybody else. It's like, man, if you are a jerk, you, that's the end. That is the end. So, yeah. <laughs> Could you talk about this? You, you say in the book, my blog had a lot more fucking teeth before I started publishing books. Yeah. My first uh, interaction with another author was actually, again, early 2004. I wrote um, a review of his novel and I loved it. One of my favorite books still. I love all of his work still. Uh, but I said, you know, there's some there's some misogyny issues I feel in here. And here's my critique of those particular issues that I saw. And here are the other things that I really liked about it. Very fair review. He was so mad. He emailed me. He emailed me. We went back and forth several times. And like as a new author, like I'd been to Clarion. I was submitting stories. Uh, I was just really intimidating. He's an award-winning author. Um, you know, now he's kind of, he's gone on and, and been a, become a bestseller. Uh, and, and it's just like, I was really freaking out. And, uh, but I was standing by my guns. I'm like, no, I'm right. <laughs> I'm right. This is flawed. These other things are great, but these things are flawed. And finally, at the end of it, he's like, okay, you know, actually, one of the reasons I responded so, um, so strongly to this is that I, you know, you're right. And I'm like, I know I'm right. But he's <laughs> like, you're right. Uh, and he's like, it's something I've been dealing with and I've been really trying to, um, address, you know, in my work. Uh, and he has since, uh, and he writes, uh, his, his stuff's gotten much better. Um, but that was my first, you know, interaction. And it was my first realization, I think, uh, that people were reading the, my blog who were like the, the authors, like no one knows, no one realizes until you become an author. You're like, what the hell? An author has all this time to sit around and Google themselves. <laughs> and it's like, that's all we do. <laughs> that's all we do. Now I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, like when I, um, I think I, uh, not long after I was at a convention, and I had just written uh, a review of Daniel Abraham's book. And Daniel Abraham is one half of James S.A. Corey, right, from The uh, the Expanse now. But this was his first novel at the time. And uh, 
I saw his name badge and like, I liked the book. There were, I just had some, you know, some critiques, but I saw his name badge and I was like, and then he started coming toward me. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. So he comes toward me and he holds out his hand. He goes, Oh, thank you so much for that review of my book. Well, it turns out that again, the book didn't have a lot of reviews and, and kind of struggled, but he was really thankful for it and was like really happy. Uh, and I started to realize like, again, <laughs> people are reading these. Uh, and so I really need to be careful about if I'm going to burn a bridge and I really am like, this is someone who writes awful things and I'm going to say that it's awful, then I need to recognize that I'm burning a, a potential, um, you know, uh, professional contact. And that was hard. That was hard. Um, you know, I wrote about Neil Gaiman's, um, you know, I had an issue with the title of his search strike collection called Trigger Warnings. And I went into that going, okay, I could potentially make an enemy, you know, by doing this, but I feel really strongly about this. Um, and I need to, I need to, uh, post about this. And that was really hard because it was like, you know, he had friends, you know, uh, who were other authors who kind of unfollowed me and he, he retweeted it. He's a nice guy. I love, I love Neil Gaiman. Um, but, uh, but you have to be really, really careful, uh, with all the stuff that you do and you have to do it and, and, you know, speak your truth knowing, that you're going to piss people off, not even necessarily the people that you're writing about, but they're friends and we all know each other. So once I think I got into blogging a little bit more, it's like, I just had to be more careful with, is this the hill that you want to die on? And sometimes it is. And I will be outspoken. And sometimes I'm just like, I'm going to let that go. <laughs> I'm going to let that go. I'll let, or I'll let someone else get that one. Uh, there was one recently where a friend of mine was like, I can't believe you haven't taken that guy to task. And I'm just like, ah, it's not my, the hill I want to die on. I have, I have other, other ones I'll, I'll take on. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you've been really pretty successful on Patreon raising funds. And I was just curious if, as that, uh, income directly from your fans increases, do you feel less and less, uh, nervous about potentially alienating people in the publishing industry? No, um, just because here's my thing. Everybody knows, this is one of the things, everybody knows everybody else. Um, and certainly it doesn't, it doesn't stop me from like taking a stand, right? There are certain things I'll absolutely take a stand on. Um, but you also just need to go, these are my, I don't want to say friends. These are my colleagues and I'm going to see them all the time. Um, and this is why like the recent like Hugo craziness is just hilarious. I, I did a group dinner with Larry Korea, I think at, at one point. Um, who's anyway, that's, that's all crazy, but, um, and, but it's fine. You're, you're fine. You sit down at the table with people and you, you enjoy yourself and all of that. But like the more fisticuffs that you get into, like the more difficult that becomes. And the thing is that we all interact in those same spaces. I actually have two, um, exes from other writers who go to uh, certain conventions that I don't go to anymore <laughs> because, because they're like, they're my exes. So it's one of those things where you just need to be understand that, you know, these people are actually, you know, absolutely going to help you. Um, but also they can also say, you know what, actually, that's not, you know, I don't want to help you because we have a disagreement and that's fine. Which is why I piss off the ones that I don't care what they think of me. <laughs> so if I care what someone thinks of me, then I might be like, mm, maybe I'll talk to them in private or maybe I'll bring this up, you know, and buy them a drink sometime. Um, but yeah, but it, you have to be a little bit, it's like with, it's like with any business, right? Like you wouldn't be like, I'm going to write us something about, you know, Joe in the cubicle next to me and say how awful he is online. Um, you have to be like, well, that's great, but Joe is in the cubicle next to you. <laughs> you have to go to work with 
with them every day. Uh, so it's important and there's a reason to do it because you're trying to enact some kind of change and, you know, uh, get Joe fired or whatever, then go for it. Um, but if it's just to be a jerk on the internet, then that's not, that's not helping any conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then I wanted to ask you about this. You say, um, I can't guarantee you young women writers that things are going to get better. I'm not going to pretend you won't get trolled, harassed, threatened, or stalked. But what I can promise you is that you aren't in this fight alone. That, that to me was, uh, very important because when I was first, uh, coming up through the, uh, science fiction and fantasy, it was incredibly important to me when I finally found the other feminist science fiction writers and found that there was a history of it. Again, right? These, these, I wouldn't say it's ignored, but, um, these sorts of histories where you go, oh, yeah, like somebody was there before me and somebody, you know, hacked through this jungle. And that's why it's a little bit easier for me to hack through it. Um, I needed to feel that kind of support and to know that I wasn't by myself. This is a very, isolating industry. Uh, I live in Ohio, uh, in a, a reasonably small town. Um, and it can be very lonely and you can feel kind of crazy sometimes, and very disconnected. And I like this book and I think people have really uh, been drawn to it for that reason because it makes it clear that we're all living on a continuum and we're all pushing together and we're all doing this together. Uh, and I think that has really helped a lot of people. It helped me to write it. <laughs> I tell people a lot of times, you know, I write these inspiring posts and books and things for myself as much as anyone. So I can go back and be like, yeah, we're going to do it. Don't quit. Uh, and that luckily, it seems like that's what a lot of people are taking away from the book. And that's that's really fabulous because that's why I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. OK. And so this book, again, it's called The Geek Feminist Revolution. And Cameron, I know you have another interview, so I'll let you go here. But so we've been speaking with Cameron Hurley. So Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Cameron Hurley for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Eddie Mafarden, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Yonatan Mavorik in Israel, who just became PayPal patron number 137. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for today's show, Casper Mattress. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com slash galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends... If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.